part one chapter three of lady byron vindicated a history of the byron controversy by harriet beecher stowe this librivox recording is in the public domain read by michelle fry baton rouge louisiana chapter three resume of the conspiracy we have traced the conspiracy of lord byron against his wife up to its latest device that the reader's mind may be clear on the points of the process we shall now briefly recapitulate the documents in the order of time one march seventeenth eighteen sixteen while negotiations for separation were pending fare thee well and if forever while writing these pages we have received from england the testimony of one who has seen the original draft of that fare thee well this original copy had evidently been subjected to the most careful and acute revision scarcely two lines that were not interlined scarcely an adjective that was not exchanged for a better showing that the noble lord was not so far overcome by grief as to have forgotten his reputation found its way to the public prince through the imprudence of a friend two march twenty ninth eighteen sixteen an attack on lady byron's old governess for having been born poor for being homely and for having unduly influenced his wife against him promising that her grave should be a fiery bed and also praising his wife's perfect and remarkable truthfulness and discernment that made it impossible for flattery to fool or baseness blind her but ascribing all his woes to her being fooled and blinded by this same governess found its way to the prince by the imprudence of a friend three september eighteen sixteen lines on hearing that lady byron is ill calls her a clytemnestra who has secretly set assassins on her lord says she is a mean treacherous deceitful liar and has entirely departed from her early truth and become the most unscrupulous and unprincipled of women never printed till after lord byron's death but circulated privately among the initiated four august ninth eighteen seventeen gives to m g lewis a paper for circulation among friends in england stating that what he most wants is public investigation which has always been denied him and daring lady byron and her counsel to come out publicly found in m g lewis's portfolio after his death never heard of before except among the initiated having given m g lewis's document time to work january eighteen eighteen gives the fourth canto of child harold to the public january twenty fifth eighteen nineteen sends to murray to print for private circulation among the initiated the first canto of don juan is nobly and severely rebuked for this insult to his wife by the blackwood august eighteen nineteen october eighteen nineteen gives more the manuscript autobiography with leave to show it to whom he pleases and print it after his death october twenty ninth eighteen nineteen volume four letter three hundred and forty four writes to murray that he may read all this autobiography and show it to anybody he likes 
december tenth eighteen nineteen writes to murray on this article in blackwood against don juan and himself which he supposes written by wilson sends a complimentary message to wilson and asks him to read his autobiography sent by moore letter three hundred and fifty march fifteenth eighteen twenty writes and dedicates to i disraeli esq a vindication of himself in reply to the blackwood on don juan containing an indignant defence of his own conduct in relation to his wife and maintaining that he never yet has had an opportunity of knowing whereof he has been accused accusing sir s romilly of taking his retainer and then going over to the adverse party etc printed for private circulation to be found in the standard english edition of murray volume nine page fifty seven to this condensed account of byron's strategy we must add the crowning stroke of policy which transmitted this warfare to his friends to be continued after his death during the last visit moore made him in italy and just before byron presented to him his autobiography the following scene occurred as narrated by moore volume four page two hundred and twenty-one the chief subject of conversation when alone was his marriage and the load of obloquy which it had brought upon him he was most anxious to know the worst that had been alleged of his conduct and as this was our first opportunity of speaking together on the subject i did not hesitate to put his candour most searchingly to the proof not only by enumerating the various charges i had heard brought against him by others but by specifying such portions of these charges as i had been inclined to think not incredible myself to all this he listened with patience and answered with the most unhesitating frankness laughing to scorn the tales of unmanly outrage related of him but at the same time acknowledging that there had been in his conduct but too much to blame and regret and stating one or two occasions during his domestic life when he had been irritated into letting the breath of bitter words escape him which he now evidently remembered with a degree of remorse and pain which might well have entitled them to be forgotten by others it was at the same time manifest that whatever admissions he might be inclined to make respecting his own delinquencies the inordinate measure of the punishment dealt out to him had sunk deeply into his mind and with the usual effect of such injustice drove him also to be unjust himself so much so indeed as to impute to the quarter to which he now traced all his ill fate a feeling of fixed hostility to himself which would not rest he thought even at his grave but continued to persecute his memory as it was now embittering his life so strong was this impression upon him that during one of our few intervals of seriousness he conjured me by our friendship as if he both felt and hoped i should survive him not to let unmerited censure settle upon his name in this same account page two hundred and eighteen moore testifies that quote, lord byron disliked his countrymen but only because he knew that his morals were held in contempt by them the english themselves rigid observers of family duties could not pardon him the neglect of his nor his trampling on principles therefore neither did he like being presented to them nor did they especially when they had wives with them like to cultivate his acquaintance 
still there was a strong desire in all of them to see him and the women in particular who did not dare to look at him but by stealth said in an undervoice what a pity it is if however any of his compatriots of exalted rank and high reputation came forth to treat him with courtesy he showed himself obviously flattered by it it seemed that to the wound which remained open in his ulcerated heart such soothing attentions were as drops of healing balm which comforted him when in society we are further informed by a lady quoted by mr moore byron was in the habit of speaking of his wife with much respect and affection as an illustrious lady distinguished for her qualities of heart and understanding saying that all the fault of their cruel separation lay with himself mr moore seems at times to be somewhat puzzled by these contradictory statements of his idol and speculates not a little on what could be lord byron's object in using such language in public mentally comparing it we suppose with the free handling which he gave to the same subject in his private correspondence the innocence with which moore gives himself up to be manipulated by lord byron the naivete with which he shows all the process let us a little into the secret of the marvellous powers of charming and blinding which this great actor possessed lord byron had the beauty the wit the genius the dramatic talent which have constituted the strength of some wonderfully fascinating women there have been women able to lead their leashes of blinded adorers to make them swear that black was white or white black at their word to smile away their senses or weep away their reason no matter what these sirens may say no matter what they may do though caught in a thousand transparent lies and doing a thousand deeds which would have ruined others still men madly rave after them in life and tear their hair over their graves such an enchanter in man's shape was lord byron he led captive moore and murray by being beautiful a genius and a lord calling them dear tom and dear murray while they were only commoners he first insulted sir walter scott and then witched his heart out of him by ingenious confessions and poetical compliments he took wilson's heart by flattering messages and a beautifully written letter he corresponded familiarly with hogg and before his death he made fast friends in one way or another of the whole noctes ambrosian club we thus have given the historical resume of lord byron's attacks on his wife's reputation we shall add that they were based on philosophic principles showing a deep knowledge of mankind an analysis will show that they can be philosophically classified first those which addressed the sympathetic nature of man representing her as cold methodical severe strict unforgiving second those addressed to the faculty of association connecting her with ludicrous and licentious images taking from her the usual protection of womanly delicacy and sacredness third those addressed to the moral faculties accusing her as artful treacherous untruthful malignant all these various devices he held in his hand shuffling and dealing them as a careful gangster his pack of cards according to the exigencies of the game he played adroitly skilfully with blinding flatteries and seductive wiles that made his victims willing dupes 
nothing can more clearly show the power and perfectness of his enchantments than the masterly way in which he turned back the moral force of the whole english nation which had risen at first in its strength against him the victory was complete this ends chapter three resume of the conspiracy